0: People of God, our scripture reading today comes from the letter of 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, it's on page 1,888 of the Bibles in your pews. This is our fourth sermon on our journey through this first letter of Peter to the Christian churches in northern Turkey. And uh, the fourth sermon in our series is we explore what it means to be God's chosen people, to be the church. And so far in this letter, Peter has followed a pretty clear line of argument. And we've been exploring Peter's line of argument through the analogy of a house or a room. And so in the first sermon on 1 Peter, the first half of chapter 1, we talked about how Peter is kind of laying out the blueprints for a room that he's building. And this room is the room of new hope, the new hope that Christians live into, the new hope that Christians live in, in Christ. And Peter sketches out the dimensions of this room in the first half of chapter one. And he says that this room is as wide as God's faithfulness, and it's as high as God's mercy, and it's as deep as human suffering. And then in the second half of chapter one, Peter introduces us to the Father of this house, to God the Father, who teaches us the house rules, so to speak. And these house rules are that all of life is holy, that the foundational principle out of which we ought to live is out of sincere love for one another, and that we ought to pursue the things in this life that are imperishable, the things that are heavenly, the things that are divine, not the things of this earth. And then last Sunday, we looked at the first half of chapter 2, where Peter introduces us to the cornerstone of this house, and that cornerstone is Jesus Christ, and he ends it by talking uh, about this beautiful, I I just love that passage, and I, I always feel, whenever I read that passage, I feel like I can't even do it justice, And because Peter just builds and builds and builds and builds, Jesus is the cornerstone, and we also are stones being built into those walls to build up that house where God will live. And he ends it with this beautiful climax that you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Because once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have. Received mercy. And those words were sung so beautifully. Where's Rick? Rick, that was an amazing gathering song. The The gathering song this morning was that passage in First Peter chapter 2. It was just those words put to music, and it was beautiful. So, Peter draws out the dimensions of this room. He introduces us to the Father who gives us the house rules. He introduces us to the cornerstone after which we are all being patterned as we build up this house where God will live. And today, he turns to the question of how we relate to people outside of this room, how we live in a pagan world that doesn't know God. And this stuff, this is good stuff. This is gonna be good. As we approach God's word, let's come before him in prayer. Our holy and gracious God, we thank you for your servant, Peter, who was such a strong leader in your church and who wrote this letter that teaches us about who we are as your people and who you are as our God. And Lord, as we explore These teachings of Peter from chapters 2 and 3, teachings that will challenge our assumptions, that will challenge our cultural ideas. We pray that you will bless us with the presence of your Holy Spirit to open our eyes, to open our ears, to open our minds, and to open our hearts so that we might see and hear and know and believe what it is that you would speak to us today. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of our faith. Amen. 1 Peter, chapter 2. We're going to start at verse 11, and we're going to read all the way to chapter 3, verse 7. The apostle writes, Dear friends, I urge you, As foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's Slaves, show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the Emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious. Of God, But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his words we are healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd an overseer of your souls. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornments, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty, of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great work in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives, and treat them with respect as the weaker partner, and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your work. This is the word of the Lord. Sisters and brothers in our Lord Jesus Christ, for those of us who have been raised in the Christian faith our whole lives, it can be difficult for us to imagine the dramatic changes that happen when someone is converted to Christ for the first time. But for Christian converts in the first century, for the people who Peter is writing to, this would have been the experience of every Christian. One Christian writer uses the example of waking up the first night that you sleep in your college dorm room. You wake up for the first time in this new place, and at first you're disoriented. Where am I? How did I get here? What is going on with my life? But after a few moments, as you kind of settle in to where you are, and and, and the weight of it kind of hits you, You realize that you're in a dorm where you're going to be living for at least the next year or so, and this whole flood of emotions comes running. It's a whole new life, a new chapter, a new world, a blank page. There are endless opportunities ahead of you as you rush headlong into the future that you have dreamed of and that you hope for. And with this new life comes new patterns, new habits, new daily and weekly schedules, new rules, and new responsibilities. And for Christians living in the first century, I would imagine that similar emotions probably went through their minds. If what Peter is saying is really true, if, what, if, if we have really been made right with God and been chosen by him to be a part of his special and holy people, what does that mean for how we live? We are new people with a new culture. And so what does that mean for our lives? We are citizens now of the kingdom of heaven. And so what does that mean for how we live in a world that is not the kingdom of heaven? As a Jew, Peter is very familiar with the story of living in exile under foreign rulers. And so that's the imagery that he turns to as he tries to make sense of the situation of Christians in the Roman Empire. You are exiles, foreigners, aliens, strangers in a strange land, Peter says. Like your ancestor Abraham, who wandered through a world that worshiped idols while he waited for God to lead him to the land that he had promised to give him and to the people who would come from him. Abraham and his family were called to something greater. They were called to holiness. They were called to live for God But that didn't make the countries that Abraham traveled to any less real. That didn't make the laws of those countries any less legal. Abraham and his family were called to live differently from the nations that they traveled to. But that didn't mean that those nations weren't still there. And the same, Peter says, is true for Christians. Christians are called to holiness. We saw that already back in chapter 1, where the Father says, Be holy, because I... Whole. This principle from the book of Le- Leviticus, from the law of Moses, is as true for Christians as it was for Israel. We are called to live and to act like God. And here in verse 2, Peter explains, verse 12, sorry, Peter explains why. Live such good lives among the pagans. That though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Live in a way that points people to God, Peter says. Live in such a way that people see God through your life. That people see God's goodness through the way that you live. Live in such a way that everybody around you catches a glimpse of God's love, of God's grace, of God's faithfulness, of God's mercy in your life. And this was one of the great strengths of Christianity in the ancient world. That Christianity, when people became Christians, it actually really, truly transformed the way that they lived. The Gospel teaches us that God has come to earth in the person of Jesus, the Messiah, and that through Him, through His sacrifice, through His death, through His resurrection, we are made right with God. We are adopted as God's children, We are already now a part of the kingdom of God that is to come. And the scriptures teach very clearly that all people are made in the image of God. And that the best way to be human, the most fulfilling way to be human, to live as a human being, is to live like Jesus, God's Son. And God teaches us how to do this through the law not through the civil or ceremonial laws that governed Israel's political and religious life, but the universal moral law that God has stamped on every human heart. And for the early church, this was uh, their great strength. They lived such good lives that the people around them couldn't help but see that there was power in the way that they lived, power even to change the world. The early Christians held firmly to this belief that all life is precious, that every human being has dignity before God. And the way that they lived made that apparent, that no matter where someone was in society, no matter if they were male or female, whole or broken, abled or disabled, married or single, rich or poor, wanted or not, every person was loved by God and precious to Him. And in the early church, this came out in very specific, very concrete ways. And countercultural ways. Ways that challenged the Roman culture around them. And I want to share a couple of these with you. One of the things that Christians challenged in the early church was that it was really common practice in the ancient Roman world to expose unwanted children. The Roman Empire had this sort of, I I like to call it the American dream, but that's totally anachronistic. The Romans had this picture of a perfect family, mom and dad and two kids, and preferably both boys, but at least one boy. And so if a Roman family uh, had too many girls or accidentally had a third kid, that was viewed as, you know, the gods kind of made a mistake. And so it was perfectly acceptable to just take that little mistake and take it out of the city and put it on a rock and offer it back to the gods. That was the way that they did birth control. And the Christians, it's so cool. The Christians would go outside of the city and they would walk around the city Gathering up these unwanted children, bringing them into their homes, adopting them through the legal system, and raising them as their own children. Because the Christians believed that these children, even though a Roman family might not want them, these children were loved and precious to God. Another way that Christians challenged the notions of the day was through caring for the sick. People in the ancient world were terrified of disease because it was contagious, and if you got it, you would die. And so when plague or a disease hit a city, people would just, whoever could, would just leave the city. They would just empty out the city. They would abandon everything and just leave the sick to die. And the Christian church said, no, that's not the way we're going to do things. So the Christians would actually come from other cities to a city that was suffering from plague and would care for the people who were sick. And in one of the great ironies of history, it turns out that when people get basic nursing care, about 60% of them survive infectious diseases. And what ended up happening... This is so funny, this is just a historical hilariousness. What ended up happening was that Christians developed antibodies to these diseases, and so the Christian church became more resilient against disease than the rest of the pagan world. That's what happens when you care for the sick. You you develop antibodies and you don't get sick. And so the church grew. And the same with the poor. Ancient Roman society viewed poverty as a curse from the gods, and that was just the way it was. Some people were blessed with wealth, other people were cursed with poverty, and that was the way it was. You didn't touch that, because if you messed with that, you were messing with what the gods had done. And the Christians said, no, that's not not right. Poverty isn't... Caused by the gods. Poverty is caused by human injustice. Poverty is caused by societal systems that advantage some people and disadvantage others. And so the Christian churches around the Roman Empire would care for the poor. They would take offerings for food and for clothing. They would establish public houses where people could come and sleep if they didn't have a home. And so the church grew. In fact, the church was growing so much that in the 5th century, the emperor, the Roman emperor Julian, who's the last at least openly pagan emperor writes an angry letter to all the priests in the Roman Empire. And you can look it up online, it's so funny. Because he says, you know, like, you guys are dropping the ball. Like, the Christian church is just growing so much because they care for the poor. And so if we want paganism to survive in this world, we need to start caring for the poor too. And the reason it's so funny is because the Emperor Julian is basically saying, if we want paganism to survive, we need to start acting like
1: Christians.
0: (laughs) And these are just three ways that the Christian church challenged the assumptions and the notions of the pagan world. And I went so far off script that I don't even know where I am anymore. (laughs) it very quickly became clear to pagans that something powerful was happening in the church, something that not only was transforming people, but was transforming society. Christians answered to a higher power, it seemed, and that higher power was powerful. Pagans in the ancient world were drawn to Christianity not because of its doctrines or its worship style or its buildings but because the way that Christians lived was literally changing the world. But just because Christians answered to a higher authority, to a higher power, didn't mean that they were above the law. And that's what Peter says here in this passage. Just because Christians are citizens of the kingdom of God doesn't mean that they don't need to obey the laws of the Roman Empire. And so Peter encourages the Christians here in his letter by telling them in, what, in words that might surprise us sometimes to obey the law, to honor the emperor, to submit to human authority. Christians are not above the law, Peter says. Live in a way that even the pagans recognize as good. Peter wants the church to be a model for the whole world of how to live fully, as a human being. And to help them do this, to help the church do this, Peter traces out three specific relationships in this passage to help the church navigate its way through a difficult, through a tricky world. Three specific relationships that would have spoken to most of the people that he's writing to. The relationship of citizenship, the relationship of slavery, and the relationship of marriage. And what surprises me is that even though the ancient world is very, very different from our culture now, so much of what Peter says here still challenges assumptions that we have in our culture. It's amazing to me that the way that he speaks about these cultural institutions is still challenging and true for us today. The first relationship that Peter explores is that of citizenship, of submission to political authority, to the emperor and to governors. And Peter encourages Christians to respect the human authority under which we live, because God has placed them in authority over us. It's important to recognize that respecting and honoring the emperor doesn't mean agreeing with the emperor. And this was very clear in the ancient church because the emperor was pagan. So Peter's not telling the Christians to agree with the emperor. Peter's saying that Christians ought to recognize that for this chapter of history, God has appointed these human rulers over us for reasons that only he will ever know. And that we need to trust him and live in a way that honors and respects that authority. Christians have been given freedom, a new freedom, Peter says. But that freedom shouldn't be used as a cover-up for evil. That freedom shouldn't be used so that we can go around breaking the law. Live as free people, Peter says. Live as God's slaves. Live as free people. Live as God's slaves. The second relationship that Peter explores is employment, or or slavery, which uh, he explores through the institution of slavery. Um, And this was the major economic force of the day. In the ancient world, pretty much everything that we do nowadays through electricity and gas and engines and motors was done by slaves. And we might look down our noses at such a world and think that we're so much better than those people 2,000 years ago. But things really aren't so different today. In fact, studies on modern-day slavery show that there are more actual slaves in the Western world today than there were in the Roman Empire at the time of Christ. That's amazing. Because at its root, slavery is a dehumanizing institution that turns people into property. That views people not as precious in the sight of God, but as a tool, as a a piece of property. And and it's awful. It, It strips them of basic human rights and human dignity. And it's something that those of us who are blessed to live in freedom need to be aware of, need to speak out against, and need to work against in our world. It's really not a mystery as to why the Christian faith grew so quickly among slaves in the ancient world, because Christianity recognized their personhood, it recognized their self-worth, it recognized their dignity, it recognized that slaves were created in the image of God. And here, Peter talks about slavery, and when Peter talks about slavery here in 1 Peter chapter 2, that's what he goes for. He goes immediately to the gospel that proclaims that every person is created in the image of God. In fact, Peter says, (laughs) "Then this is amazing to me. It's almost like Peter says, you know, I'm telling the whole church to live like Christ. But slaves already are doing that. Slaves are already living like Christ. Because they suffer what he suffered. The unjust suffering of slaves is the same unjust suffering that Christ went through On the cross. And by their example, they are living into the story of Christ's death and resurrection in the way that the rest of us have to learn from them. They're living out the gospel in their very lives. And it might seem to us like Peter is colluding with wickedness in a way. That Peter is telling slaves, you know, just keep your head down, just keep quiet, just do what they say, and you won't get hurt. But Peter is doing something so much more profound than that. Peter invites us all to reimagine suffering as a participation in the life of Christ. But at the same time, even by addressing slaves... Peter is challenging the prevailing attitudes of the time that didn't see slaves as human beings with rights or worth at all. People didn't write letters to slaves in the ancient world because they didn't see slaves as people. And here Peter is writing to slaves. And he's saying, you are not only people with rights and with worth, you are more like Christ than the rest of us. You are more like Christ than the rest of us who live in freedom. The ancient world measured slaves by their economic worth, by their contribution to the workings of the economy machine. And the sad truth is that our economic system today sees people in much the same light. We still view people as assets and liabilities. We still measure human worth in terms of productivity and effectiveness and what people can contribute to society, investment versus risk, rather than operating off the basic Principle of human dignity that human persons are created in the image of God. We measure people by their contribution to the economic machine. So, Peter might be giving slaves the advice to work diligently and to obey their masters, just as he might encourage us today to work hard and listen to our boss. But what Peter is implying in this section, just barely underneath the surface, especially when he goes into this beautiful section about the gospel and what Christ has done for us, what Peter is saying is that God's transformative power touches even the most menial labor. The dignity of Christ touches every aspect of human work touches every human person, even those at the very bottom of society. And so in this section, there is an implicit call to all Christians who occupy positions of privilege, of power, of freedom, and of wealth to advocate for the dignity and the rights of those who cannot advocate for themselves. So Peter isn't saying, keep your heads down and be quiet. Peter is saying, live like Christ. And to slaves, Peter is saying, you are like Christ. In front of the whole church, Peter says, you are already like Christ. The suffering, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus is the point around which all of history turns. And Peter invites us to see the suffering of God's people, the unjust suffering of God's people, as somehow mysteriously tied up in the suffering of Jesus Christ Himself. And so, those of us who have, who who do live in privilege and wealth, have a responsibility to speak out for our suffering brothers and sisters. Whether their suffering manifests itself in unfair pay, in unfair housing, in unfair opportunity, or in outright persecution, Peter challenges us to recognize the dignity and the worth of each person at every level of society. And finally, Peter turns to the relationship of marriage. And this section is so challenging for us. Even after 2,000 years, these words still tear a hole in our cultural perceptions of what it means to be a man and to be a woman. You go to the store, grocery store, and when you're in the checkout aisle, there's all these magazines, right? And there's men's magazines, and there's women's magazines, and they're all the same. Women's magazines are hairstyles and makeup and jewelry and clothing, beauty, attractiveness, top 10 tips. You pick up a men's magazine, at least the ones that you're allowed to touch in public. Bodybuilding, expensive cars, golf, technology cultural symbols of strength and power and skill. And the words that Peter gives us here cut through this like a sword. Imagine a different reality, Peter says. Imagine if people saw women as beautiful not because of the things that they stick on their body, but because of the quality of their heart. Suppose that what gives a woman real stature is something that affects her whole character, something that transforms her from the inside. Suppose that instead of makeup and jewelry and clothes, what really makes a woman desirable is the quality of her soul, the goodness of her character, the quality of her virtue. Now there's a radical idea. Or imagine that men were powerful not because they're physically stronger than their wives, not because they can bully their wives into doing whatever they want, but because they treat their wives with respect and dignity, as equal partners, in the gracious gift of life.
1: Imagine
0: if men found their power in partnership with their wives, even though their wives are physically often weak. Imagine if men viewed their wives as heirs together with them of the gospel of grace. Now there's a radical. The fact that Peter's words here still challenge our assumptions about gender, even today, shows that this is a lesson that every generation needs to learn anew. I think it's telling that over the years, men have strongly emphasized verses 1 through 6 while quietly passing over verse 7. But verse 7 holds the whole point. The point of Peter's advice for marriage is not so that the husband and wife can get along and avoid divorce. The point is that husband and wife need to be able to pray together effectively. Because prayer is the work of the kingdom. Prayer is the work of the church. And men and women are partners in this work. Equal partners in the ministry of the kingdom of God. we often miss just how radical the Christian message is in the ancient world. In the ancient world, the emperor was viewed as a god. Slaves were viewed as property. Women were viewed as a lesser form of human, a a deformed man, according to the philosopher Aristotle. But the scriptures are clear that that kind of thinking has no place in the Christian church. The Bible views all people with dignity. The emperor is not above anybody in the sight of God. Slaves are not below anybody in the sight of God. Women and men together are equal partners in the ministry of God's kingdom, in life, in prayer, and in humanity. And Peter's words here emphasize that truth in a powerful way that all humans together are a part of the work of the kingdom of God. No matter our social status, no matter our wealth, no matter our political position, no matter our gender, we are equal in the sight of God. These are the three relationships that Peter points to as he encourages the Christians to live holy lives. Live in such a way that even the pagans, see that you are good. (coughs) Live in a way that points people to God. Live like Christ. And even though ignorant people might accuse you of doing wrong, by the way that you live, you will show them what God is like. And on the day that Christ returns, they will recognize him and they will glorify Him. And this is something that is so powerful and transformative because what Peter is saying here is that by our example, we introduce people to God. In our lives, by the way that we live, we help people see God. And on the day that he comes again, Peter says even the pagans will recognize God and glorify him because through our lives they will recognize him what a powerful responsibility what a powerful privilege what a powerful calling In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said. Let's pray. O Lord, our God. Even 2,000 years after Jesus walked the earth, we read these words from Peter the church and they challenge us. They challenge our understanding of authority. They challenge our understanding of human worth. They challenge our understanding of what it means to be male and female. And Lord, we pray that as we try to live in a way that brings you glory, that you would bless us with the presence of your Holy Spirit in our lives to transform us more and more into the image and the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that in everything that we do, we would point people to you. That people would see your love, your grace, your mercy in the things that we decide to do every day. And Lord, we pray that through our actions those around us might see you so that when you come again they may recognize you and glorify you. All of this we pray
1: in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.